the words might have been spare, but they punched you in the gut. Right. Exactly. They were. And I remember just like being profoundly impacted by those words um, and being like, this is what poetry means to me. It's being able to reach into someone's heart and get down to the heart of what a, what a message is. Cut away all of the excess and just get to the root of a thought. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with the wonderful Jasmine Kaur. She is an incredible writer, illustrator, a spoken word artist living on unceded Stolo territory. Her writing, which explores feminism, social justice, survival, and love, acts as a means of healing and reclaiming identity. As a poet and a teacher, she's toured across North America, the UK, and Australia to captivate audiences through her poetic storytelling. Welcome to the show, Jasmine, and also congratulations on your very first book. Can you hold it up for us, your debut yes. book? It's real. It's a real yes. book. And the title is When You Ask Me Where I'm Going. And I'm very excited to be talking with Jasmine today about her work, her book, which I've had the pleasure of reading. It's incredible. Um, and she's an incredible person. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I've you know, back when you mentioned this podcast to me and being on the podcast, I was just like super honored and grateful that you wanted to have me on and just excited to have this conversation because it's it's so deeply rewarding for me to be able to engage in conversations um, about my work with women of color, yeah. um, to be able to dive into those, you know, very real issues that I try to dig into through this book. Thank you for saying that because, you know, your work for me it speaks to so many complex and nuanced issues. It was such an honor for me to get to read your work in advance of it coming out. And almost every page that I read just like hit me, you know, straight in the heart. So I'm excited to be sharing that with everyone here today. So let's dive in. Our very first question, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned societal or familial who've influenced you on your journey? So when you asked me this question originally, the first names that were coming to mind were the ancestors themselves who I mentioned in When You Asked Me Where I'm Going. So I wanted to actually read a couple of the poems um, that yes, reference these individuals and then I can share a little bit about who they were and how their lives and their lived experiences shaped everything that I do. So I'll read out the poem first and then explain a little bit about it. Please. The English professor quotes another dead white man asks us whether it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved before. The Shaheeds stand before me, hearts and bodies still intact. 
hands tied behind their backs with the crowns once tied around their heads. One by one, they are washed away by the river. Red blooms where life once was, and love blooms where the earth loses her beloveds. So this poem is dedicated to Shahid, just once in cholera, and to every Singh and God, to every Sikh woman and man whose extrajudicial murder was uncovered by his work. So within a Sikh context, the term Shahid means someone who gives up their life, standing up for others, standing up for their community, um, standing up for those who are in danger. So this poem, I think people kind of have a lot of questions about it because of the terminology, but it essentially explores the story of um, Shahid just once in Kalada, who was murdered in 1992 by a Punjab police because of his work to uncover state-sponsored murders in Punjab. So this is at a time when many Sikhs in Punjab, especially, you know, people coming from marginalized communities were protesting against state injustice, you know, state caused poverty. There were farming issues that were causing, you know, farmers to feel entirely hopeless and not feel like they had any sort of control over their lives. So this is at a time of political unrest where young people and old people are rising up and challenging the state. Um, Mm -hmm. And amid time, um, in order to kind of curb political dissent, the police were attacking and in many cases, torturing and murdering young protesters. So amid this time, there were parents who were coming about and saying, you know, we can't find our kids. We don't know where our sons have gone. And just one thing, Kalada, he, hearing these stories, wanted to kind of uncover the truth of what was happening. So his research led him to find a logbook of cremations that were where the families were never informed of the cremations, where the cremations occurred. And it was all of the names of the people who were missing, whose parents had come to him, you know, asking about finding their sons and daughters. So he found those logbooks and he found records of those state-sponsored cremations and deaths. And he took his research across the world. He came to Canada, England, um, the U.S., trying to like, you know, shed light on these atrocities. But when he went back home to Punjab, one day he was picked up by the police and he was never heard from again. And it only came out later when the police finally admitted that they had detained him and that he was tortured and murdered by police because of his activism. And I think it was about 10 years later that the police who murdered him were tried and convicted in his death. So just one thing, she hates just one thing's name is a household name among like sick families across the world. So when I wrote this poem, I was thinking about what love means through an anti-colonial lens. Mm. Um, I was thinking about how, you know, we describe love in this one term within a Western context, which is between like you and your partner or romantic love. But what does it mean to, to love your community so much that you will go to the ends of the earth to, to find the truth for them and to even, you know, give up your life in the process? I think that a lot of my work is is inspired by you know this beautiful history of like revolution and activism that comes from my sick community and the values that have been instilled in me through you know living through a sick lens and i think that that's something that was important for me to channel through this work as well i think that it can be kind of frightening to be 
to, you know, finally have a space to tell your story and then feel like, you know, well, people will be receptive to it if I truth as it is, yeah. whole and entire. There can be like, you know, this kind of voice in the back of your mind that says, maybe I should water this down. Maybe I should make it more palatable to white people or to white spaces. But I think the beauty of this book is that I did not do that. And that's what I wanted to say. That's one of the things that I love so much about the book is that it felt as I was reading through it that you were writing for yourself rather than writing to have to explain, look, this is what my culture is and this is how it works. You didn't spend that time having to sort of do that educational work, which I really appreciated because for so many of us, especially those of us who are people of color, but we are not living in the cultures from which our parents are from, we get conditioned to always having to explain things like thinking, oh, what I do is like an exception to what's normal. So I'm going to have to explain it to you. I really love that you didn't do that. It made your work for me. It was like, no, this stands on its own. It's not, it's not less than or other just because it doesn't fit within the white gaze. It is what it is. And, you know, it reminded me of how, you know, growing up, when we were growing up in the UK, my parents tried to give us names that were Muslim Arabic names or Muslim names, but that were easy for the white mouth to be able to pronounce. Mm -hmm. And what I felt when I read your book was she's not doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Jasmine is not going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. I feel that. And I can absolutely relate to that. I think that it's very rare even right now when things are still, you know, trying to change that I even see myself represented in, you know, right. the books that I read or the media that I consume. I don't think I've ever seen a sick woman who ties at this thought, a turban, in any of the, you know, mainstream media that I consume. So when I got this book deal, my first thought was how do I continue to carve space for us? Like I can create a book that will be like very like, you know, universal, but like, Will that do the work of pushing doors open for other sick women, for other gods who deserve to see themselves in the media that they consume? I never grew up seeing myself in any of the books that I read. There was not a single instance growing up when I ever saw a girl who looks like me or sounds like me or has experiences like mine as a Punjabi sick girl in any of what I consumed. But it was interesting that I never even considered that odd because I had never seen myself, I didn't know that I could be seen. Right. And looking back at that as an adult now, I think that's terrible. Right. <laughs> I think that you know, there is a generation of girls that deserve to see themselves in the books that they read exactly as they are. And I think that is the absolute most important thing to me when I think about what this book will mean when it's on bookshelves. Yeah. So I'm getting chills right now. And because what I'm hearing, you saying underneath everything else is like, you understand that you being given the opportunity to share your work in this public way, that you're not just standing there for yourself, you're bringing everyone else with you. And so that sense of responsibility is a privilege and it's also sometimes a weight, right? You've talked about how, you know, with your poems, you really like, crafted, recrafted, went back again and again, and that your creative process is quite arduous. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
what your creative process is. And as you're going through really trying to, you know, because the passages are short, but they, each line is so intentional. I remember reading each part and then having to pause <laughs> the end of each one and just really let it sink in at multiple layers. It takes a lot of skill, yes, to be able to do that, but there's something else going on. There's the energy that you're pouring into it and the intention that you're pouring into it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think when I first got into poetry, um, it was like right at the end of high school, like right when I was getting into university and I was reading a lot of spiritual poetry. I read a lot of Rumi. Um, and what I loved about Rumi's poetry was that the words might have been spare, but they punched you in the gut. Right. Exactly. They were. And I remember just like being profoundly impacted by those words um, and being like, this is what poetry means to me. It's being able to reach into someone's heart and get down to the heart of what a, what a message is cut away all of the excess and just get to the root of a thought. And of course, that's like evolved for me over the years, that concept of what poetry means to me. But I think that has been a huge influencer in how I, I started writing. So with my poems, in this book, it was very important for me to, to write some pieces that are one stanza long and to write some pieces that are, you know, five stanzas long. Right. Because as a teacher, I know that learning takes place in a variety of ways and learning is better for everyone when there are diverse mediums through which we are able to express ourselves. So sometimes those like one stanza poems are very, very important. And sometimes I need to flesh them out in different ways as well. So when I write poetry, it's a little different than when I write prose. I tend to start with a mind spill, as I like to call it. Like I just like to throw all my words out on paper as if no one is ever going to look at it. Because I feel like when I have that editorial mind right. mindset already kind of ingrained in me, then I just, I, it's, it kind of stunts me. Like I can't get right. down to my house. I can't write because I'm so worried about what everyone will think. Um, right. So I have to just write as if no one is going to look at it. And that's how I kind of take whatever's happening in my brain and put it down on paper. And after that is when I can read back my words and find that which is meant to be kept for myself and find that which is meant to be shared with my audience. Because I think that there's a, definitely a difference. Mm. I think that there are certain Can you thoughts. talk about that? Yeah, talk yeah. about that. So I remember in one of my poetry classes in university learning that communication is not just what you, what you intend, but what is conveyed. So I think that there are some thoughts that I write that will only ever make sense to me. Um, and then there are some ways of expressing things that are meant to be conveyed to others. And I can't remember which poet it was who said this, but there was a poet who I really, really admire, and I can't believe I'm forgetting her name now, but she mentioned that she has one journal just for herself and one that is meant to be like shared to the world. So I feel like there is some writing that is just meant for you. I feel like, you know, we live in a day and age now when we are made to believe that everything needs to be shared with the world in order for us to be relevant. Um, right. And sometimes that means that we lose time for ourselves and that sense of, you know, self-development and self-care that has to happen in private. So going back to like my editing process, I go through that, you know, large mind spill and reflect on what needs to be shared and what needs to be kept for myself. Um, and that's when I take those thoughts and think about how I can refine them. I think about how I can shape these words in the best possible, most succinct possible way to get to the heart of what I mean. Mm. Um, and to cut away the excess. And then from there, um, pass my work on to a couple of trusted people. I like to know how my message is being communicated, as I said. 
And if it's not, if the communication process isn't working, then I have to go back to the, you know, the drawing board and start again or change up my language or, you know, listen to that feedback. And then it's just a process after that of amalgamating the feedback I receive with my original intention. Um, Because I feel like feedback is very, very valuable, but you also have to have a sense of trust with your own like intention of what a work means. So it's about kind of bringing those two together um, and then creating something that is ready for the world. Mm, I love that. Thank you for that piece around, you know, sharing it with a small number of trusted people who you know will, I'm assuming who you know will be able to hear the place that you're coming from and really want to hold that, right? Hold that energy and also like want to pull out the best of you as well and are able to give you feedback in a way that is constructive and compassionate at the same time. I think many of us find it difficult to do that because what I'm hearing, like even as as you're speaking about your creative process and what you said about, so many of us think that if we don't share what we have put together, that it's not relevant, right? And so we are so used to like create, share, create, share, Mm -hmm. create, share. And what you're talking about is slowing the whole thing down actually, and really taking care with every single part of it so that when you do put it out into the world, it's how you really want it to to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, um, like I said, like the day and age that we're living in, um, where everything happens on social media it affects like our creative process, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way. Um, I think that capitalism's violence seeps into everything yeah. <laughs> all the time. Right. Um, I think it's especially difficult when you are an artist trying to kind of stay afloat and to come onto social media to have your voice heard, especially when it's becoming more and more difficult to be heard on social media. So right. for example, I came on Instagram like years and years ago because I love the idea that I could just share my complete thoughts and not have to wait for someone else to decide that my thoughts are valuable enough to be heard. I can just go onto my Instagram and share it and whoever resonates with it will resonate with it and they can find my work um, easily and on their own. So that's why I came to social media. But like now I feel like because we're living in a time where everything is being commodified, um, everything is being kind of capitalized upon. It's even difficult for artists um, and especially like emerging artists and young artists and, you know, artists that are just trying to break into these industries to be able to be heard on social media where you're now expected to pay money just to be heard by the people who already have established that they resonate with you because they follow your work. Um, So I can definitely like understand why this kind of like pressure has been created because like social media places that pressure on us. But I think that it's so important and so valuable for us to step back and just like take a look at what this monster is and realize that our work is more important than this, you know, need to create and share quickly. Right. It's this, this double edged sword, right? Because it's like social media is the way through which people who don't know you would get to know you because your work gets shared. And at the same time, if we're not intentional again, about our own creative process, it just hijacks the whole thing. And then you're being run ragged and you're outputting a lot, but it's more quantity than quality. Exactly. Yeah. And like I said, I could feel with, with each passage of your book, like the quality and the care that was put into it at multiple different layers. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I'd like to open um, your book and sort of look at some of the 
poems that really jumped out at me. An open letter to South Asians. Okay. Mm. Let's see if I can find that one. That one really hit me in the gut. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that was a necessary one. Yeah. For a lot of different reasons. I've got it here. Page nine. So I'm going to recite this one. An open letter to South Asians. But what if you get dark? Is to say that dark bodies don't let light in. Is to say that there is something dirty about the biological makeup of skin. Is to say that some people are born clean and need to keep it that way. Is to say that you don't hate Black people, but you thank God you weren't born one. So this is like a very, very heavy poem. And it's, it it's, is. Inspired, <laughs> yeah. it's inspired by a lot of the things that I've seen close up and firsthand in my community. And I think that it's a difficult conversation to have, but one that is so very necessary. I think that color is so steeped in so many different communities of color and especially in South Asian communities. And that's why this letter is directed um, very specifically and pointedly at South Asians. Because I see this happening all the time in my own community where people who are light-skinned are praised as beautiful and people who have darker complexions are, are seen as the opposite. And I've always wondered like where that arises from um, because historically in, you know, South Asian tr- traditions and Punjabi traditions, there are beautiful descriptions of dark-skinned people. And it even comes in like six scriptures describing, you know, one's lover as like dark-skinned. But now we live in a day and age through colonial violence, um, through the trauma that was, you know, British occupation of South Asia, where light skin is viewed as the norm of beauty and darker skin tones need to be corrected, um, enlightened through like, you know, fair and lovely and all these kind of products that are deeply harmful physically and like psychologically. So this poem kind of comes from that. I think back to a moment that I've heard retold to me about when I was born. Also in South Asian cultures, like there's like this kind of bias that, you know, male children are just better. Um, It's better to have a boy than a girl simply because they will be able to, you know, continue like the family name and like pass on like generational wealth and all this kind of stuff. So the birth of girl daughter, um, girl children is often in certain generations of our community seen as like a bad thing. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And that's a whole story to get into in and of itself. But I remember someone telling me that when I was born, someone who saw me said, oh, well, you had a daughter, but at least her skin is fair. (laughs) Like as if that was like a redeeming quality um, in my birth as like a girl. And I think that that moment is like, it's, it's constantly resident in my mind and it's indicative of how much work our community needs to do um, to unpack these biases and these absolutely dangerous ideologies that light skin is inherently beautiful. Right. Yeah. And it's so important for people to understand that anti-blackness is, is global. It's not just something that white people hold. It's something that non-black people of color hold. And it's something that black people hold as well and have to work through. The lightning creams, you know, all of that is, that industry is so huge. And it just preys on, as you said, this idea that whiter Mm -hmm. is more pure. And I hear that so often. What if you get dark, right? So even here in the Middle East, there are certain cultures who, when they go outside, will 
make sure that they're carrying an umbrella, make sure that their you know, hands and their feet are covered. I look at it and I'm like, wow, <laughs> like, so what if you get dark? What will actually happen? And I know so much of it is tied to colonialism, but it's also about, I think in many cultures about if you're darker skinned, you're seen as one who works outside and therefore mm. are of the lower yep. class. And it just, it hurts my heart a lot. Absolutely. It's something that I think specifically in non-Black people of color communities is a conversation that really is very important because you have to hold that duality of, yes, we have been absolutely oppressed and affected by the violence of colonialism and white supremacy. And at the same time, our anti-blackness harms black people and, yep. and people who are dark skinned, both and at the same time, right? Absolutely. And I think that this is work that we have to do as South Asians, as Punjabis, it's work that has to happen internally within our community. And we have to be willing to have those difficult conversations or those uncomfortable conversations and move past that sense of ego sometimes that can be stopping people from being able to humble themselves enough to have the conversations about their own biases. Because I feel like as people of color, we tend to feel that our conversations about our oppression needs to come first. And I've seen that firsthand where people will say, oh, that's a conversation for later because, you know, we are dealing with this systemic violence and this and this and this, and we are um, experiencing xenophobia and racism. So we need to have those conversations first and conversations about the harm that we are causing that can come after. And I think that that in itself is so problematic because we don't get free in isolation. We get free as a collective. together, And there is no freedom unless all of us are working towards it in tandem. Um, So I think that's where a lot of the work needs to start, even within radical activist spaces within like our communities. Yeah, yeah. Jasmine, tell me a little bit about what influenced you on this path to sort of really digging into how colonialism and systems of oppression have had this impact in the world and what were the kind of like turning moments for you that made you really want to dig into this work? That's a great question. So I feel like part of it really comes from the Sikh tradition of like resistance. Sikh spirituality is deeply embedded into Sikh politics as well. We are taught the concept of media and beauty, which means that you are embedded in spirituality, but you are also completely aware of what's happening around you in the world and you are resisting injustice. Um, So this is embedded into our spiritual practice, not just, you know, like our political practice. our political practice. So we, I think as, as Sikh youth, we often grow up hearing stories of, you know, Sikh activists, like I mentioned, like just once in college. We grow up being told these stories at bedtime. For many of us, becomes like a part of who we are from a very young age, from a very young age. And I think that's really, really beautiful. Um, I do too, yeah. My thought, for example, um, my Sikh turban, it, it has a political history as well, which I want to touch on. Um, Please do, yeah. So during the time period of the sixth Sikh Guru Guru Hargobind Sahib, turbans were, you know, only tied by the ruling class. They were tied by royal people. They were tied by politicians and political leaders. And there was a decree passed that only those in positions of power are allowed to tie turbans. So as an act of resistance, the Sikh Guru had all of their Sikhs begin to tie turbans as a means of saying that all human beings are equal. So it's like, even when I step out into the world, my physical identity 
is deeply embedded into my activism and my politics. So for me, there is no separation between like all these different worlds. Existence to me is, is political and it's, and it's an act of resistance to exist in this body as a Sikh. So when, when I got into university, that's not necessarily when like my awareness of like political issues became, you know, established. I think that this was something that was in me from childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I, gained inspiration from these stories. But in university, it's when I started realizing that I don't just need to wait for someone older to kind of give me directions on how to make a difference in the world. Actually, I can do these things as well. So that's kind of when I became empowered to like, you know, research on my own further and engage my community and my and youth around me in these kinds of conversations. So in my first or second year of university, I organized one of my first arts events, which centered around poetry, but it also centered around like um, issues related to the incarceration of Sikh activists in Punjab. So it was a way of kind of bringing together these two things that I'm passionate about, poetry and activism. So interestingly, like my poetic journey began and grew through like my journey um, in activist spaces as well. So I think that's where a lot of these poems come from. It's in the understanding that poetry is meant to be used as a medium for activism. Um, going back to the sixth Sikh Guru, there is like historical records that describe the ways in which, you know, during that time period in, in South Asia, there was deep-rooted political oppression. The ruling class classes were extremely violent towards like religious minorities, and there was a lot of persecution that took place. And the Guru, although encouraging Sikhs to, you know, um, take up practices of self-defense, also encouraged poetry as a means of resistance and as a means of um, inspiring people to yeah. feel engaged in their community. So like, again, going back to my Sikh tradition, this is like rooted in me from way before birth through my ancestors to use poetry as a means of raising my voice and being heard and, and amplifying others as well. Thank you for sharing that, that rich history. And I can understand how there's a difference between sort of learning about it as an intellectual subject as a sort of young adult versus being growing up in a culture that has that at its very core. It informs everything that you do and everything that you are. Um, And so this work is just a natural extension of everything that's been poured into you through your ancestors, uh, you know, up to your family now, and that you are continuing to walk the path of of your ancestors and, and your community, which is so, so beautiful. In doing this kind of work, which is, as you said, there is this rich history of resistance at the Sikh core. When you're somebody who is leading resistance work or you are doing resistance work, you're going to get resistance pushing back at you, right? Absolutely. What has that been like for you, for people who find your messages and your work uncomfortable, find it that there's reactions of fragility or actions of uh, threat of harm, if that occurs, how do you walk that? That's a really important question. I think that there are definitely people who want to understand me in parts. And that goes for my, my Punjabi Sikh community. It goes for, you know, white people who follow me. It goes for like everyone. I think that for example, um, there are a lot of white women who will really, really love, you know, my love poems and, my less overtly political poems, because I feel like everything I do is political in some way, but it just needs to be unpacked. But they'll say, you know, I love these kinds of poems, but like this one, like I really, like I could have done without it. And 
conversely, I'll see people um, who say, you know, I love your political poetry that is like, you know, um, very specifically linked to like revolution, but I don't like how you were talking about dressing in a way that is empowering to you, which doesn't adhere to what I traditionally view as like modesty, for example. Right. So I feel like from many different angles, I'm being told, I like this part of you, but not that part of you. And you should quiet down that part and amplify this part. And for me, I understand that all of this encompasses myself. None of it can be taken. I cannot be sliced into pieces, which also references one of my poems in the, in the book as well, which I, where I kind of expand on that. But I don't want to be understood in pieces. I want to be able to hand you the entirety of who I am and have you know that this is me from beginning to end. So going back to the book, there were very specific reasons why I chose the chapters that I chose. Um, the first chapter, Skin, um, it deals with my interactions with the world at an external level, how my skin and everything on it is interpreted by a world that refuses to understand me. And the racism sometimes that I experience, the misogyny, all of that is kind of encompassed in that book or in that chapter. And then the next chapter, I dig a little bit deeper into my internal self and I get to muscle, which is the resistance, the outrage at injustice, the outrage at like the, the violence that I experience in the world. I'm digging into like myself in that more intimate sense. And then we go a little deeper into the lung and we deal with sadness, pain, existential crises that occur as a result of those things that I've mentioned previously where you are deeply misunderstood by the world. And then we enter Nerve, which is my, my fictional short story, which I see as kind of an amalgamation of like the themes that I discuss in my poetry um, come to life in the stories of these two Punjabi Sikh women who, again, like I've never seen Punjabi Sikh women described in that way on paper before. So it was important for me to kind of bring my poems together in the form of fiction and in the form of these two women's lives. And then we move into Heart, which deals with love in in every sense, whether it is love for your family, love for your partner, love for revolution, love for your community. And then we end off on light, which is um, poems that deal with a sense of freedom from everything that I've described before, um, a sense of liberation from the oppressions and shackles that you experience in the world. And all of those chapters, as different as they are, encompass my experience. I could have just written a book that was only poems like skin or only poems like heart or only poems like lung, but all of it needed to come together because I wanted to explain that my experience in this world as a sick woman is multifaceted, complicated, and you can't just understand me through tropes and limited ideas of who I am. You need to understand that I am just as complicated and complex as you, even though I look different from you and you have these kind of stereotyped notions of what my life is like because you only see me on the outside. That's kind of like where where all those things kind of come together through like my writing. Uh, I love this so much. And, you know, when you were talking earlier, before you started talking about people wanting to understand you and love you in parts, you were talking about something else and Audre Lorde just came to me and I was like, it's a lot Mm -hmm. of Audre Lorde in what she's talking about. And I was like, oh, maybe because I just love Audre Lorde. Maybe I'm just, (laughs) I link everything to her. But then when you said about people want to love me in parts, that's when it really struck me. You know, she really struggled a lot with, you know, people either wanted her to only talk about issues of blackness, right? Or, you know, issues of being a lesbian. There were those who were not happy because she had relationships with a white man and a white woman and had uh, biracial children. And she just was like, I define myself for myself. 
And if you're going to deal with me, you're going to deal with the whole of me. Every single part is me. And I so see that when you were explaining that there are some people who the popular poems that they'll like to share, the ones that are maybe seen as universal, um, the love poems, the ones that don't necessarily deeply reference your culture, your history, you know, issues of oppression. But then the rest, they're like, we don't, we don't need that. And the converse is true as well. And what I hear you saying is to everyone's gaze, I am going to be who I am and I'm complex and multi-layered and ever changing. And I, and what I love about that and what I, why I think so many people struggle with that is because so many of us don't give ourselves permission to be that ourselves. So when we see someone else doing it and insisting, these are all the different parts of me, all of these contradictions are perfect. They're not contradictions even. They are just the wholeness of who I am. People are like, but no, you can only be this. You know, you can only be this one thing. And I, I see that as something that, as humanity that we really struggle with giving ourselves permission to be whole. Um, and so when Absolutely. someone comes along, it's like, it's either going to inspire you or it's going to trigger you in a way where you're going to react in a really violent way. So something you mentioned like just a little earlier was that, or we talked about, you know, white women engaging with my poetry. And that reminded me of an instance where, you know, my screen poem, which went viral, um, was altered and kind mm. of made to suit, you know, the white or like, you know, the immediate needs of like neoliberal America and, you know, politics in America at the time. So I think it was last November, so it was about a year ago, when my poem, which reads, scream, so that one day, a hundred years from now, another sister will not have to dry her tears wondering where in history she lost her voice. Mm. Where that poem was altered, where somebody crossed out the word scream and just wrote vote. And I remember seeing that alteration and just feeling like, I don't like this, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say something about this. I, mm. I, this makes me uncomfortable. And I'm not really sure why exactly yet, yeah. but I want to know if I can say something about it without being seen as that loud woman of color who's just making a big deal about something that's really not a big deal. Right. Um, so I kind of went back and forth reflecting on my discomfort and like my, uh, my sense of frustration for a couple of days before I even found the courage to say anything about it. So when I first wrote this poem, it had to do very specifically with my relationship with my identity as a sick woman. Um, I was thinking about how um, so much of Sikh history is told and recorded by Sikh men. There are Sikh women who, you know, documented their lives, but they are very far and few um, in our history. And I was reflecting on how my understanding of myself as a Sikh woman today would be different if I had more writing by historical Sikh women to, to look back upon, to be able to see myself within. And then yes. I came back to the present moment where, you know, I'm living in a day and age now where I'm able to document my whole life. I'm able, right. able to go onto Instagram or social media or Twitter and write about myself and share images of myself and render myself visible in a world that so often doesn't want to see me. And just reflecting on how amazing that is that um, myself and so many you know young sick women are doing the exact same thing today, whether they are passionate about photography or fashion or cooking or whatever it is, but we are yeah. able to, to render ourselves visible in this world. And just thinking about the impact that that could have, you know, a hundred years from now when another God, another sick girl or woman can look back and reference us as 
perspective points on like, you know, what life was like a hundred years ago for women just like her and how beautiful and empowering that would be for someone a hundred years from now to be able to collect those kinds of stories. So when I wrote this poem, it was very specifically to do with, you know, the documentation of our lives as Punjabi safe women. And then I was very, very surprised to see that it resonated with others because I thought that it was one of those thoughts that just made sense inside of my own mind right. and wouldn't mix anyone else. But so when people resonated with it, I was so surprised and it was, it was very positive for me. But I was also like very interested that women of very different communities were resonating with it for reasons that were entirely different than right. what I had intended. And I thought that that in itself was beautiful that um, we're able to find so much within one metaphor. Right. The issue which is, occurred. Which is the beauty of poetry, right? Absolutely. Yes. Right. I think the beauty of poetry is all those multiple layers and meanings. Yes. But the issue is when someone wants to assign a single meaning to my work right. and diminish all the other meanings. So right. when the word scream was crossed out and replaced with the word vote, yeah. what it was saying was that my one single interpretation of your work is the only one that matters. This poem cannot mean anything else has to mean what I think it means and I'm going to do this without asking for your permission because I think that I'm entitled to do that right and when I actually sat and reflected on like you know that being the reason why I'm so upset about this I was like I have to speak about it Mm -hmm. because if I don't then my voice is being erased out of a conversation about my voice right Um, exactly the irony of it right exactly I think that was so ironic to me that this was a poem about, you know, my voice is sick woman. And now my voice is being removed from it to suit right. someone else's need. So right. when I spoke out about it, I did so very, very nervously, I think because of exactly what I said, that we are socialized as women of color to want to be as palatable and um, polite as possible. And to and seem as unthreatening as possible. Exactly. Right. So when I spoke my mind, I think there were definitely like some people that were like, oh, this is a big deal for no reason. Or, oh, I don't see why you had to, you know, write a whole post about it or you right. can't get over it. Like, or, t- yeah. or take it as a compliment of your work or something. Yeah, I got that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, no, like it's not a compliment for someone to take my work, change it without permission and right. expect me to be okay with it. That's not a compliment. A compliment right. would be you doing the work to understand who I am and why I wrote right. this have a conversation with me about it right. first at least. Right. So I was very, very happy that there were people who listened to what I had to say mm. and valued my perspective on this alteration and did the work of, you know, removing the posts that they had posted mistakenly where my words were edited and then crediting me for my work. That was deeply positive for me, but I was also very aware of the fact that I had upset a lot of people <laughs> um, by speaking my mind. And if they, and the thing was, if me being honest about how I feel about alteration of my work upsets you to that point that you, you need to unfollow me, then you should be unfollowing me because the space is not meant for you in that case. If you are here to learn, if you are here to challenge yourself and grow, you are absolutely welcome. But if, but if you need to shape me into who you want me to be in order to stay, then I don't think that you should be here in the first place. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Amen for that. Because, you know, again, I'm just so struck by how we are often walking this very tricky line between being people who are seen as public figures who are putting work out into the world that is consumed in this sort of mass way. And that's great because more people are getting to see our work and it you know, it means that our work gets to grow. And at the same time, like 
you spoke of the erasure, right? And yeah. I think a part of this is also to do with, aside from, you know, the obvious side of like privilege and power, right? There is also the way that social media functions where it's like, I can just take this and do what I want with it and just yeah. spit it back out into the world. But what I'm hearing you say and what I really respect about you is, you know, that you were clear that your boundaries had been, had been crossed. Yeah. Right. And yes, I'm here as a public figure. I put my work out into the world. I do share it, but that does not mean that you can take my work, reinterpret it, remix it, reinvent it, and then spit it back out as if it's nothing when I had to pull it from my, you know, the depths of my guts <laughs> right, yeah. to get it. And I think that's what so many of us as artists and creative people, that we have to know that, as you said, yes, you do have the right, right? Yes, I do have the right to say, this is how I want my work to be understood, or this is how I want my work to be portrayed. And if you would like to change it, you need to ask me and not assume that you can just take it. Of course, it happens to everyone, but it also happens the way that when it happens between someone who has racial privilege over someone who does not, there's just a whole other level of violence to it because then you're in a position where you're like, do I have permission? And then you're, can I say it in a way where I can stand up for myself? But what if it causes this lash back, which it does no matter how you say it, Um, (laughs) right? Because you just merely using your voice is going to cause that, which is, again, speaks to the irony of what the poem was about. Absolutely. Um, it's a tricky line that we're treading, but it's, it's important for us to hold the line as well. You know, it's important for us, I think, to really hold that line. I agree. And I think when I posted my response, I also encouraged people in my audience to do the work of understanding who I am. You know, if you're going to consume my work um, right. so freely on the internet, wherever, you know, I post my work, I think that the very least that somebody can do is to put the effort into understand who I am and why I am. So for That's example, right. I often have people posting questions on my social media like, oh, your your last name is God. Does that mean that you are, you know, you're related to this other person with the last name right. God that I know? Or, you know, things of that kind of like nature. And And I think that it's, a well-intentioned enough question, but it also implies to me that people have not gone out of their way to do the work to understand who I am and, and why I have this name. Um, right. So for context, during the period of the 10th Sikh Guru, when the Sikh identity was being solidified um, in a very visible way, all of their Sikhs take on names that erased the caste-based mm-hmm. kind of connotation of traditional South Asian last names. So all Sikh men took on the name Singh, which means lion, and all Sikh women took on the name God, which means, you know, royal or prince. And what was implied through taking on those names was that all human beings are equal and we will not be bound by the classism inherent in these names that have been given to us. So all sick women, like I said, take on this name. And it's a beautiful sense of like sisterhood that's created when you can see yourself represented in in everyone of your faith. So when Rupi Gore's book came out, for example, I think it was a moment for a lot of sick women to just see their name God on this book um, that's being sold in like a public space. But I think that there's still so much misinformation about like what the name God means and we are as sick women. So like I've had, you know, white women comment things on my posts, like, 
are you just, you know, writing poetry because your name is God and you're right. trying to write it off of another right. woman? Which is, <laughs> and, it's, and it's like they don't even realize that it's xenophobic as they're saying it. And right. it's like so ignorant it right. is. It is extremely suggest, ignorant, right. To suggest yes. that sick women's stories don't deserve to be heard because. Or, or you know, there can only be one. Exactly. Right. And the thing is, like, they're, like I said before, like, representation of sick women is so limited in mainstream mm-hmm. literature that it was such a victory for, like, one of us to be, to be heard, um, you know, through Milk and Honey. And that was one way of pushing the door open for so many other voices to now emerge. So I think that, like, our stories of sick women are nuanced. We are not just a monolith. We are not just, right. we are not just one book. We are millions of books and all of our books deserve to be out there in the world. And this name, God, deserves to be celebrated and, and heard in many different ways and not just in a single context. So when I see, you know, white women commenting these things like, oh, you know, you're just here because of your name. I hope that thousands more women with this very same name, God, do the exact same work of being able to, you know, have their books published and have their stories heard because all of us deserve to be heard and not just, you know, a handful of us or a minority of us. Right. The ignorance of those kind of questions is just kind of, it's mind-blowing, but also not, right? Also so predictable and speaks to this idea that if Rupi's name was Smith and your name was Smith, right, you wouldn't get that kind of a question, yep. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And so it's this idea that, oh, she's got this name that's other. We don't really know it. Oh, there's another one that must mean that, you know, she's doing this because of this reason, which is so limiting. And I think so many people who hold white privilege do not realize the ways, the so like big ways. Okay. Yeah. But these small ways with these throwaway comments in which they limit people of color to- how they think we are supposed to be or how far they think we are supposed to go or how big they believe we are supposed to grow is so limiting. And so the work that so many of the guests like yourself who I get to speak to on this podcast and people all over the world are doing to assert and say, despite what you may believe about me, actually, I do have a right to be here. And I Absolutely. will be here in a way that honors who I am and what makes me comfortable and not what makes you comfortable, which is so revolutionary and it's powerful. And it's also a daily risk because Absolutely. you're exposing yourself to harm. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's just the truth of it. I agree. And I think that it's very difficult work to kind of like carve space for ourselves but it's so necessary. And I think that in those moments where I'm just like, why am I on social media? Like just the barrage of, you know, constant like ridiculousness gets too much. Sometimes I know that if I remain, it's going to make it easier for another God to walk through the door next or to be able to be herself or to be able to, you know, carry herself as she chooses and not the way that other people want her to, to exist. Yeah. Um, as I say that, I think back to, the ninth grade, when I at the time did not tie a turban, I didn't tie this thought, but I did cover my my head with like a ramal, which is a a smaller form of like head covering, mm. um, worn by six. And it was a lot. It's a lot more of a subtle head covering, mm. so people so aren't going to notice it as easily as my my very visible turban. Um, and I remember a god, a sick girl, 
walking by in the hallway and I was standing next to my white friend as she walked by. Um, and this girl had a, had a, this thought tied on her head that was very, very, you know, big and prominent. And my white friend turned to me and said, you should never tie that. It won't look nice on you <laughs> or just that, that doesn't look nice. You should definitely not do that. And I just remember like the impact of like, you know, living in this world where like my identity as a sick is being like constantly like right. told to like shrink and diminish. So I feel like just being visible sometimes is a radical act. And despite how difficult it can be, the reward is that it's easier for me every single day to be myself because I've carved this space for myself. And I think, and I hope that it becomes easier for others as well to remain themselves when they can see themselves represented in their environment. They might not see themselves in, you know, literature or media or like, you know, mainstream media yet, but like to be able to see yourself on social media represented in so many different ways, I think can give a young person the encouragement they need to remain who they are. um, And to not, to not give into those, you know, those voices of ignorance that tell them that they're, that their identity is not beautiful, that their, their identity is not valuable. Right. You know, as you were telling me that story, I had a flashback, something that I'd completely forgotten about. When I was, I want to say 16 years old, I decided to stop wearing the hijab. I don't wear it anymore, but I decided right. to wear, stop wearing it at that time. And I remember feeling so apprehensive about first day of school in, you know, first day of the new year, we'd finished that the past year and I wasn't wearing the hijab. We were coming back to the new year. I was going to stop wearing the hijab. So I was really feeling apprehensive about it. Now, bear in mind, I was here in the Middle East. It wasn't odd to yeah. see a, a woman in a hijab or even kids, you know, in our school who were wearing hijab, but it just was new, you know, and I was nervous. And I remember coming into school and going into the bathroom before registration and I was sort of fixing my hijab and a girl that was in my year, she was white. She was either British or South African or Australian. I can't remember. And she sort of looked at me and (laughs) said something like, you know, it doesn't look that bad on you. Something like that, you know, which felt like the most backhanded compliment (laughs) ever. You know, it was just, it just crushed me. You know, it really just crushed me. And I fast forward to now, and I, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is that there are so many representations of hijabi Muslim women in the media. Yes. Authors, models, rappers like Mona Haider, like so many different representations. Iftihaj Muhammad, you know, a fencer who show that you you can be hijabi and you are beautiful and you can be wherever yeah. you want to be. You know, and for my daughter, whether or not she chooses to wear the hijab when she is older, that's her choice to make. But it just matters to me that she sees it's not an odd thing. Absolutely. And it doesn't make you this stereotype or lesser than, and it's so beautiful, which is, you know, again, it's strange that I even have to think of that her growing up here in the Middle East where many people wear the hijab, but it's what we see through the media that shows, yeah, but yeah, it's normal, but you're not going to see those people in positions of leadership, or you're not going to see them in positions of what's seen as beautiful or what's seen as valuable or creative or what, you know, exactly. And so it really does matter to see people who look like yourself being represented. It changes the landscape completely of what you believe is possible for you. Absolutely. And that reminds me of, you know, what's happening in my motherland of Punjab today, where 
it's seen as strange for sick men or women um, or sick, sick people in general to tie turbans. People are told, oh, you know, why do you look like this? Um, you should just kind of cut your hair. You should, you should not tie a turban because you'll fit in better with like mainstream culture if you just kind of look this way. And that's happening in my motherland, which is like the most like devastating place where it should be the most safe place to, you know, celebrate yourself and be yourself. But right. it just kind of shows like the impact that, you know, xenophobia and like internalized, right. And yeah. internalized oppression, that internalized self-hate. Right. Absolutely. So it's like the work has to be done everywhere. And for us to render ourselves visible through social media or whatever platforms we have is, is huge. And I hope that it continues to kind of push down these notions that we need to diminish ourselves in order to survive or in order to, to thrive in, in society. Mm. Jasmine, can we read another, another passage from your book? And I'm going to ask you to choose this time a poem or a passage that for you felt the most tender. Okay. That is a cool direction to take this in. Um, Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of the times my spoken word is, is is deeply like, (laughs) um, fiery and intense, but I don't get to always do those tender things. Right. So it's again, it's like that that reflection of like all parts of myself and all yeah. parts of myself and not just some. So this is an untitled poem. It's on page 218. This morning, I wake up as if something wants me. I take another breath because I've been searching for too long for a reason to breathe. Call it the universe, call it the divine, call it whatever. But I know I was created by something much larger than a human form. I know this body, a city of its own, is the eighth wonder of the world. I know that every breath I take defies too many probabilities to count. I know that I'm hardly here long enough to unravel the mess of it all. But this morning I wake up as if life herself wants me. Because maybe it's true. This is how I remember to want myself. Oh, that's So, so beautiful. Thank you. So this poem... It relates to kind of, you know, those struggles to feel like you belong in this world. And although it's very tender and personal, I think it also connects back to the politics of, you know, living in a world where you are told to diminish yourself constantly because of your identity as a woman of color. Yeah. And the psychological impact and the mental health impact that takes sometimes when you're just trying to find a reason why you matter. So I think that even like, you know, our mental health as people of color, there's a politics to it living in this world that's extremely rooted in white supremacy right to wake up and smile every morning to wake up and feel like you are valuable is a is an act of resistance i think yeah as you were reciting the poem and then just sort of explaining um i thought of an essay by audrey lord called poetry is not a luxury have you ever have you heard of it or read it i haven't okay can i just like read a passage of it because yes, as you were reading that poem and as you said right before it, you said, you know, a lot of your poetry can be quite fiery. And oftentimes when we, as people of color and Black people are doing our work, it's always expected that it's about resistance. It's about pushback. It's about this like fire and this power. And we have to give ourselves the space to be whole, soft, tender as well, right? And it's one of my favorite pieces by her. And she speaks about how it's not a luxury 
in terms of like, it gives us the language to be able to interrogate our experiences. But it's also, like you said, that self-care, like what you just recited felt like a warm bath of light to me. And in a world where so many of us are struggling with mental health, with just the realities of daily life, with you know, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, and what that tells us about ourselves and what we have to contend with. Poetry for me doesn't feel like a luxury. It feels like a necessity. Mm-hmm. I would love to know, you know, obviously you write a lot of poetry, you know, it's not a luxury, but for those who are not poets or are not comfortable reading poetry, who think like, poetry is going to be really hard to get through. It's really, I don't understand the language. I know for my husband, when I first started reading poems to him, he was really surprised that it was so accessible because what we had grown up with was like European (laughs) poetry, which is beautiful, but has no, I don't understand. Like it doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So likewise, like I, in my undergrad, I was just studying, you know, Shakespeare and Milton and all right. these, you know, European writers. Um, and none of the work that was propped up as valuable reflected my lived experiences. So when I discovered Rumi, when I discovered, you know, poets of color, um, sick poets, it became like a way of me healing. And to be able to use poetry as a catalyst and a means of yeah. of channeling the roots of your emotion, I think right. is such a powerful, beautiful thing. And it's not something that I was taught that poetry can be because I was taught that poetry must be a puzzle to be unpacked always. And it's, it's a pastime of the intellectual or whatever. Right. And that- almost like you have to have this certain level of training or education to be able to access it. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like as young um, you know, poets of color now, we are changing that whole rhetoric and people don't like it necessarily because it doesn't fit within what they thought was, you know, allowed to be poetry. Um, But it doesn't matter because that's what we're doing and that's how we're choosing to express ourselves. Right. I found um, the very, I think this is the opening. It might be the opening line from the, from the piece. And she says, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change. First made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. That is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. It's, I really encourage you to read it. It's such a beautiful piece, but it's also, to me, what it speaks to is how it's not something that we just do because it's nice flowery words. It has intention. It drives us forward. It feeds us. It gives us language to be able to see the things that we need to be able to see and that it again like in a world that is very you know especially now in the modern world which is very tech driven and very capitalist and and a lot of consumerism to say take a moment take a beat breathe listen to these words you know come back to yourself Mm. And not just sort of come back to yourself so you can transcend to some other place away from here, but really to be here with what is going on. That very thing that you spoke about very early in our conversation about sick uh, spirituality, about understanding that you are both like in this world, but not of this world, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? 
that you hold both of those at the same time. And that is the beauty that I see that poetry contributes to the world. It's for me, it's, it's soul food. Yes. But it's like, not because it just makes me feel nice and warm, but because it gives me language, as she says, to be able to say the things that I'm not able to say about the things that I feel. That is a beautiful way to put it. And I think that exactly as you said, that is how I'm going to carry my work forward. Mm. Um, as I you know, begin to like share my words aloud and go on readings this fall for my book, I think that's a beautiful reminder when we get so caught up in the logistics and the nitty gritty right. of like, um, being a poet, to be able to come back to your root, to be able to come back to your heart through your words again and again is a beautiful privilege and an honor. That's right. That is how I see it. You know, so often the work that poets do is undervalued. It's undervalued because it doesn't look like a long memoir or a long, you know, fictional novel with all these different characters. As you said, it's maybe a stanza or five stanzas, but the work that is put into crafting that yes. is just, to me, it just blows my mind. It, it really, really does. And that when you're left with it, and as I keep saying to you, I read your work and with each passage, did not have the words to be able to explain how it made me feel. It was all feeling. That's amazing. You know, it was just like, ah, that's how I felt, you know, just ah. And that is so special in a time like now. I mean, it's been special always, as you said, you know. But it's not necessary his, right now. Right I, now? Yeah. Yeah. I think that we're living in a world that is teetering more and more towards walls, towards borders, towards misunderstanding of those who are different from us. And I feel like poetry can be a beautiful bridge to be able to come back to our human selves, um, right. to come back to our hearts when this world wants to harden us and turn us into concrete. That's so beautiful. Thank you, Jasmine, for saying that. This has been an incredible conversation. I feel so honored to be able to speak with you today. And you just brought so much. Um, I really want people to go and buy your book. <laughs> I really want them to soak themselves in it. And, you know, the thing with poetry is that you can just return to it again and again and again. You know, you can read it all the way through the first time. And then anytime yeah. you can just flip to any page and just soak in those words. So I really encourage everyone to read it. As we close up, I'd like to ask you our final question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? To me, being a good ancestor means that I leave enough of myself for those who come next, that they have a blueprint to either follow or to completely scrap, but there is something there for them to look back upon and say, yes, I existed in each of my past selves. Yes, I was in this world. I deserve to be in this world. I deserve to occupy the space that I occupy. And I deserve to continue pushing to create more space for myself. That is beautiful. I love that you said they can take the blueprint or they can scrap it. There's so much freedom in that, right? <laughs> so often we talk about, I want to lay the path before them so they can you know, walk where I walked. It's like, no, I just want you to know that you can, that there exactly. is a blueprint and you can also create your own. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Okay. Thank you so much for having me, Leila. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at 
Good Ancestor podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor. <laughs>